today on Against the Grain, understandings of fascism helped shape the construction of the Latinx left in the U.S. They also helped lay the groundwork for contemporary notions of pan-ethnic identity. So argues Michael Staudenmeier. I'm CS, the Manchester University-based historian, joins me to discuss fascism, state repression, binational radicalism, and pan-ethnic solidarity coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. What is fascism? What are its defining features? In what locales and time periods has fascism materialized? While understandings of fascism vary widely, they can influence the trajectory of activists and social movements. They can help shape responses to domestic and international political developments. Michael Staudenmeier has used the case study of a small U.S.-based revolutionary group to examine a host of fascinating and important issues. The phenomenon of internal colonialism, the scapegoating of populations, competing theorizations of fascism, state repression in the Americas, pan-ethnic identity and solidarity, and neo-Nazi and Klan activity in the U.S., That revolutionary group, formed in 1977, was called the MLN, which stands for Movimiento de Liberación Nacional, or the National Liberation Movement. Michael Staudenmeier is assistant professor of history at Manchester University in Indiana. His article, America's Scapegoats, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S. Latina Latino Latinx Left, 1973-83, appeared in the October 2020 issue of the journal Radical History Review. That issue had the theme and title, Fascism and Anti-Fascism Since 1945. When Michael Staudenmeier and I connected recently, I asked him what the U.S.-based Puerto Rican independence activist Jose Lopez said in 1980 to a United Nations committee. Jose Lopez is speaking to the Special Committee on Decolonization as part of a concerted effort that the MLN and a number of other groups were involved in to convince the United Nations to declare Puerto Rico a colony. Um, And the UN has, unfortunately, in my mind, consistently uh, declined to do that since the early 1950s when a new constitution went into effect in Puerto Rico. Um, But as part of this effort, Jose Lopez is speaking to the special committee, and he is making an argument. Um, he plays the the Hitler card, so to speak. He says, you know, if, if you want to understand how bad this is, let's draw the analogy to Nazi Germany. Um, and part of his argument here uh, is not simply to say, look at all the bad stuff, right? Bad, bad, bad Nazis. Uh, but instead to say there is an internal logic to the rise of Hitler in Germany in the 1930s. And that has to do with the fact that Hitler was very skilled at scapegoating certain populations of people. And in um, in his speech, Lopez outlines Jews, Poles, and other Slavs. Um, and, and then he makes the analogy to the United States. And he says that as the United States continues to develop in a more repressive and imperialist uh, direction, the scapegoats of America or of the United States will be the internal colonies, and especially in his case, Puerto Ricans, he's Puerto Rican himself, but also Chicano-Mexicanos and uh, and Black Americans and Native Americans. Right. Internal colonialism is what Lopez is is referring to, this phenomenon. Some listeners might not be uh, familiar with it. What is uh, internal colonialism? So internal colonialism is a theory that's developed by a number of uh, what today we would simply call people of color in the United States. Often in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, they would have self-labeled as third world peoples. Uh, And the idea was the third world was at that time in the throes of this kind of great revolutionary upheaval the various independent struggles in in Africa, um, the wars in Indochina, and national liberation struggles uh, across Latin America and other parts of Asia as well. Um, And a lot of people of color in the United States strongly identified with those movements on a global scale uh, and saw parallels, not just in terms of how 
they could build movements that might replicate some of those victories in the third world, but also in a kind of diagnostic sense, looking at the problems of people of color in the United States and seeing them as a form of colonialism here at home uh, in the United States, rather than the kind of colonialism that we often think of, where maybe a country from Europe, for instance, uh, has control over another place in, in a different part of the world. Um, internal colonialism is that same dynamic, but it plays out within the borders of the United States. Colonialism often operates in relation to nations. The concept of nation and nationhood in the case of uh, colonized peoples in the U.S., uh, that doesn't refer to nation state as such, but to a, a nation formed by a certain kind of people? Yes, the idea of, of national identity, it's often spoken of as, and, and how that links to nationalism. Um, the classic example in the United States in this era is the rise of black nationalism, uh, which is you know, a longstanding tradition uh, in black communities in the United States going back to the 1800s. But in the 1960s, especially with sort of high-profile groups like the Black Panther Party, uh, black nationalism becomes a kind of hot-button topic in the United States. And a number of other, again, communities of color, we would say today, uh, take inspiration from that and begin to talk about the idea that there is a, you know, a, a Chicano nation in the United States. Um, the Puerto Rican national liberation movement or, or nationalist sentiment in Puerto Rico goes back also to the 1800s, independently of black nationalism in the United States. But by the 1960s and into the 1970s, there's a real synergy between those two forms of national identity and you know nationalist politics. Uh, and yes, in each of those cases, we're not talking about an actual nation state. Puerto Rican nationalists often you know, speak of the ambition to create a sovereign nation state, but it doesn't exist. There's never been an independent Puerto Rico um, in the same way that there's never been an independent Black Republic, for instance, inside the present day borders of the United States. But these ambitions are kind of percolating within different sectors of the radical left in the United States in the 1970s and into the 1980s. So you have this Chicago-based Puerto Rican independence activist Jose Lopez talking in 1980 to the uh, to a UN special committee. So your point is that colonized peoples in the U.S., including uh, Puerto Ricans, were scapegoated, and Lopez is saying that that reflects a certain kind of uh, fascistic impulse. Yeah, here I would point to there's a, a a long quote that I mentioned in the middle of the article, and I won't recite the whole thing, but uh, from a Martinican poet and political activist named Amé Césaire. I'm terrible at French, so I'm butchering that name, and I apologize. But uh, Césaire has this essay from 1950 um, in which he basically says that you know white people, he's thinking specifically in Europe, especially in France, uh, they misdiagnose the problem of, of fascism. They don't see fascism as a problem of a crime against humanity per se. They see fascism as a, a crime against white men or white people, um, and that they don't understand that the techniques of fascism were developed, according to Césaire, in the third world, in the form of European colonialism and imperialism in, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, etc. Uh, and that therefore there's a, a clear link in his mind and also in, in Lopez's and, and that of many other radicals of color in the U.S. in the 1970s um, between colonialism, whether it's internal colonialism that we were speaking of earlier, or international colonialism, the more traditional kind of colonialism in Puerto Rico itself or in Latin America or elsewhere. Uh, there's a clear link in their minds between colonialism abroad and fascism at home, so to speak. What did M.A. Césaire say about first world liberals and what they could not forgive Hitler for? So the, the quote from Césaire is that uh, at bottom, what effectively white European liberals cannot forgive Hitler for is not the crime itself, the crime against man. It is not the humiliation of man as such. It is instead the crime against the white man and the fact that he applied to Europe colonialist procedures, which until then had been reserved exclusively for 
uh, the Arabs of Algeria, the Coolies of India, and the N-words, he says, of Africa. So Jose Lopez was a leading member of a group, a U.S.-based group, called the Movimiento de Liberación Nacional. Uh, in English, it's National Liberation Movement. We're going to use the Spanish um, acronym MLN. You indicate this group, the MLN, had a binational character. How so? So there are lots of national liberation movements of various sorts around the world in the 1960s and 70s. Many go back decades before that. Uh, But the MLN itself is unique, as far as I can tell, in the history of such movements, in that it contains people who come from two distinct nations. So it includes both Puerto Rican uh, radicals and what today we would often call Chicano radicals. Uh, the, the, the Chicano members of the MLN called themselves Mexicanos. They didn't actually embrace the term Chicano for sort of obscure reasons. They, they believed that the southwestern United States, where the largest Chicano populations were at that time, uh, was sort of illegally seized by the United States after the war with Mexico that ended in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And so they saw themselves as uh, sort of citizens of the Mexican nation in spite of the border, in spite of the intervening you know, century plus of U.S. control of the southwestern United States. Um, so the MLN is, again, unique, I believe, in having two different nations come together under a single organizational umbrella. Uh, you don't see that, as far as I can tell, uh, in other historical national liberation movements, whether they're in Latin America or in Asia or in Africa. So this umbrella, the MLN, was founded in June 1977. What was the impetus for creating this organization and for forming this uh, alliance between two peoples? Well, all of the founding members of the MLN had already been politically active. So this is sort of... uh, an effort to kind of take the lessons they had learned over the early and middle part of the 1970s as young radicals uh, and apply them in an organizational sense. And one of the big lessons they learned was that the United States government had serious repressive powers. It was able to arrest people. Uh, If you look at the horrific case of somebody like Fred Hampton, it's able to simply assassinate radicals it doesn't like. Um, But it, it has this repressive power And the big lesson from that is their strength in numbers. And so for the Puerto Rican and Mexicano militants who come together in in 1977 to form the MLN, the idea of working together across their national differences is we will be more well-equipped to resist state repression if we are actively coordinating our activities rather than being Um, separated in two distinct organizations because we're really facing, they said, the same basic problem. We're facing state repression. And and that is in particular in the context in 1977 of a series of federal grand juries. In, In 1977, there are these grand juries that are actively investigating both Puerto Rican militants and Mexicano militants um, at the same time for particular reasons that go back sort of to the middle part of the 1970s. Uh, And the result is that the MLN is an organization that is born in a kind of pressure cooker environment. Uh, Within just a couple of months, most of the people who had been at the founding meeting uh, are in jail. They're in federal jails um, for refusing to testify in front of the grand juries that had been impaneled before the MLN had been founded. So the common experience of state repression is really what leads the MLN to come into existence. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Michael Staudenmeyer is my guest. He's assistant professor of history at Manchester University in Indiana. He's author of Truth and Revolution, A History of the Sojourner Truth Organization, 1969 to 1986. And he's a veteran of anarchist, anti-imperialist, and anti-fascist movements. We are talking about an article he wrote that caught my eye in the October 2020 issue of Radical History Review. It's called America's Scapegoats, in quotes, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S. Latino Left, 1973 
1983. MLN radicals, they looked abroad, uh, naturally, right? I mean, these are uh, Mexicanos, these are Puerto Ricans uh, living in the U.S. Um, and they looked also to Chile, a U.S.-sponsored right-wing coup in that country had removed Salvador Allende from power in 1973, and many people will know that Pinochet was installed. How important was this development in Chile to how the MLN militants thought and acted? It's really very important for the MLN's founders. They spend a lot of time trying to dissect sort of what what goes wrong in in Chile. Some of that has to do with the run-up to the 1973 coup in in Chile, where Allende is, he's an avowed socialist. Um, You know, he is interested in radically transforming the relationship Chile has had to European and especially North American sort of uh, neo-colonialism, if you will. So Chile is a sovereign country. It's been independent um, since the 1800s, um, and yet it is experiencing a kind of imperial, you know, power grab from the United States and other countries, largely through um, multinational corporations, especially mining corporations, etc. Um, and so, for a lot of young Puerto Rican and Chicano radicals, a lot of radicals of color of Latin American. Uh, birth or or heritage in the United States looked at Chile under Allende as a promising signal of what could get better, right? And so to have that reversed so violently and so thoroughly in the form of the 1973 coup is an eye-opening event, to say the least, for the people who end up founding the MLN. And uh, they try to understand what happened and in doing so, they're, they're trying to figure out, are there similarities between uh, the nature of the coup and the nature of the kind of internal colonialism that Mexicanos and, and Puerto Ricans suffer inside the United States? And, and in developing those parallels, the, the MLN's founders really kind of settle on the, the term fascism as a descriptor, not just of Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile, but also the various dictatorships in other countries in, in the Southern Cone, Uruguay and Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, um, as well as the possibilities of kind of far-right control in the United States itself. So this theorizing of fascism was important. It was important to the MLN's analysis, the way they viewed the world, the way they understood repression, uh, not just in other countries, in other specific countries, but in the U.S. What did they, how did they theorize fascism? How did they define it? Yeah, this is an important question because the definition of fascism, the sort of working basis of the MLN's argument, whether it's about what happens in Chile in 1973 or about the risks of fascism inside the United States, about forms of fascism that they identify in Mexico and in Puerto Rico, elsewhere, um, is really based on this famous phrasing that um, comes to us from the Soviet-led Communist International or Comintern in the 1930s. And there's this single sentence definition that's often associated with a, a Bulgarian communist named Dimitrov. And that, that line is, fascism is the open terroristic dictatorship of the most reactionary, most chauvinistic, and most imperialist elements of finance capital. Uh, I want to be clear that that's not how I understand fascism. And I, I try to be careful in this article to simultaneously recognize the sophistication that the MLN puts into trying to mobilize this definition in its own context, uh, while also being clear that I adhere to a rather different understanding of fascism that highlights more its autonomous and insurgent character. Um, This is sometimes called the three-way fight model. But for the the MLN, the big thing that I want to highlight is it's too easy. Often people in in my little milieu around the three-way fight concept, we look at that Dimitrov definition and we associate it with the kind of use of the word fascism just as an epithet that means very bad, right? And that's common enough on the left in the United States. Um, Anything can be described as fascist if you don't like it. Uh, But that's not what the MLN is doing. They are developing a fairly sophisticated, even when I disagree with it, analysis and understanding of what fascism is and what it is not. So from 
the perspective of the MLN, what fascism is, is basically a top-down approach to state repression, but combined with that notion of scapegoating that we talked about very early on, and that's the framing for the entire article, right? So they are not simply saying when Lopez is talking in 1980 about the rise of Hitler in Nazi Germany, he's not saying that Hitler comes to power simply because of state repression. He's saying that there is state repression, but that it is paired with a kind of scapegoating um, that makes targets out of certain categories of people. Um, that becomes crucial to the analysis the MLN puts forward in both Latin America and in the United States. Um, although in their case, to a great extent, especially if you look at the case studies I, I offer in the article of how the MLN understands fascism in Mexico and how it understands fascism in Puerto Rico, they're not looking at racial or ethnic or religious categories, the way that we traditionally understand what the Nazis or other kind of classic fascist movements are doing. Um, the MLN is arguing that the scapegoats in a place like Mexico or a place like Puerto Rico are often simply the left or radicals specifically, um, and that that can be a target, a scapegoat, through which fascist forces in a top-down way can kind of mobilize the, the larger populations of those uh, of those polities, of those countries, or in the case of Puerto Rico, of the, the Commonwealth or colony. For those of you who've just joined us, MLN, which we are referring to and will continue to refer to, is the name for a group uh, begun in the late 1970s in the U.S. that brought together Puerto Rican nationalists and Chicano militants in the U.S. And so if... MLN radicals understood fascism, and here I'm drawing from your article, first and foremost as an extreme variant of state repression under capitalism, rather than an insurgent threat from the far right that challenged capitalist hegemony, then what ramifications did that have on their willingness or inclination to turn to the state to take on um, fascist factions, fascist insurgents in this or that country? What attitude did they assume toward the state? And what uh, trust, one might put it, did they put in the state that it could uh, handle and repress fascist elements in society? This is a very pivotal point because the, the main strategic lesson that the MLN draws from their particular definition and how they uh, apply their understanding of fascism to different locales is to basically say, well, if fascism is a top-down uh, act of the government itself, then you can't appeal to the government to shut down other fascists. Uh, they use the example, and I quote from an MLN member named Steven Guerra, um, who says to call for grand jury investigations, again, that, that use of the, of the state repression of the grand jury, of the Klan or of police, police who kill people, uh, is to ask for a cancer to cure itself. That, that puts them in a, in a particularly different strategic standpoint than a lot of what we might call liberal anti-fascists, right? Liberal anti-fascists have a long history in the United States of saying, well, the fascists are these bad guys who operate outside of state power, whether that's the Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazis or whatever. Um, and what we should do with these people is we should get the, the police to investigate them. We should get the FBI to investigate them. You know, I, I enjoyed the movie Black Klansman that came out several years ago, but it, it, it basically lays out this very liberal notion of anti-fascism that says the police will solve the problem of the Klan. And the MLN is unalterably opposed to that. Now they are not, certainly the MLN is not an anarchist organization. They're not an anti-statist organization. They're interested in, for instance, building an independent nation state in Puerto Rico. So they're not anti-statist per se, but they are keenly aware of the real problems of relying on the state to defeat the fascists, because in their mind, the state and the fascists are so intertwined, so indistinguishable, that it, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's completely illogical. The notion of asking a cancer to cure for itself uh, is, you know, I think, a, a really clear metaphor. You note the more recent use of direct action rather than 
appeals to police in order to, you know, prevent far-right activists from appearing in public. Is that strategy a, a continuation in your mind of the anti-state approach you've been talking about? Yes, I, I draw a pretty clear link between multiple generations of a kind of approach to collective resistance uh, to you know, this kind of nexus of state power, but also of, uh, of fascists operating outside the state. And so in the 21st century, you, we've often heard a lot of conversation about the concept of no platform. Um, and that, you know, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different kinds of anti-fascists. But one of its core usages over the last 15, 20 years has been the idea that rather than, you know, ask for the local government to not give a permit to a bunch of neo-Nazis, instead taking direct action and making sure that they can't have a public rally, that they're not able to uh, to assemble in the ways that they want to. Uh, that seems to me very clearly an extension of this kind of anti-statist approach or a version that doesn't rely on the state. I'm working separately with a, a couple of co-authors on a, a book project about the history of anti-racist action in the 1990s. And one of their famous slogans was, uh, we don't rely on the cops or the courts. Um, and I think that you can draw links across these kind of generational moments or versions of collective resistance. Uh, I also highlight an, er an even earlier one from the 1930s and 1940s when the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party uh, develops a, a theory of what they call retraimiento, which is usually translated as withdrawal, uh, which is the idea that we don't vote in colonial elections, we don't participate in the enactment of colonial power in Puerto Rico at all. We will resist by not participating. Um, obviously, these are all slightly different. They have slightly different uh, connotations and slightly different associated uh, actual actions. Um, but I, I see a clear link across generations um, with the MLN forming a piece in that chain across time. That's the voice of Michael Staudenmeyer. I'm going to spell that for you, S-T-A-U-D-E-N-M-A-I-E-R. He teaches history at Manchester University in Indiana. We are talking about an article he wrote about the MLN called America's Scapegoats, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S. Latino Left, 1973 to 1983. You can find it in the journal Radical History Review. Yeah, let's talk more about how the MLN saw or viewed what was going on politically in Puerto Rico at the time. This is, again, the late 70s, early 80s. Did the MLN use the lens of fascism to aid their analysis? Yes, absolutely. So in Puerto Rico in the 1970s, uh, and this is still in some ways true today, the political party system is different than the political party system in the United States. It's not typically dominated by Democrats or Republicans. Instead, for a long time, and this is kind of changing now, the three major political parties um, were defined by their approach to what should be the future status of Puerto Rico. Should Puerto Rico continue to be this sort of weird in-between spot that uh, is often described as uh, as colonialism? Um, should it become the 51st state of the United States, uh, or should it become an independent country? And the statehood party, which is called the New Progressive Party, or PNP, um, is denounced by most of the independence movement um, as thoroughly reactionary by the 1970s. Um, and going back, it's founded in the 1960s. But throughout the 70s and, and 80s, the independence movement views the possibility of Puerto Rican statehood as a, a fundamental threat to the idea of Puerto Rican independence. All they have to do is look at the Civil War. A war is fought to keep states from seceding from the United States. So if Puerto Rico were to become a state, then any future possibility of it becoming independent seems to be off the table. And that produces real ire targeting the PNP. But at the same time, the PNP does a pretty good job of uh, articulating a very conservative kind of politics on Puerto Rican kind of internal affairs, right? Not only do they want the United States to make Puerto Rico a state, but they also want 
Puerto Rico internally to be governed in a, you know, a conservative or what we would today call a law and order fashion. So for the MLN, it's the PNP's embrace of this kind of law and order approach that they see as uh, yet another example of the kind of state repression that they've already criticized in the United States. They've already criticized it in Chile. Uh, and they, they see that developing in the mid-1970s in the PNP's, you know, kind of uh, power. Um, at that point, they control the governorship uh, of Puerto Rico. And and they, they launch this argument against the PNP, or, or at least a particular segment of the PNP, um, that they describe as colonial fascists. Yeah, and how would you evaluate their understanding of the uh, policies and the existence, I guess, of the conservative New Progressive Party in Puerto Rico as fascist? Does does that make sense to you? To some extent, it does. To some extent, I'm critical of their analysis. Uh, where I think they get it kind of right, or at least in a in a way consistent with their other formulations of fascism, is think again about that notion of scapegoats. Um, and they argue, I think, pretty successfully that the PNP is scapegoating the the militant radical left uh, in Puerto Rico as a way of kind of mobilizing the broader Puerto Rican population to support statehood by saying, look, we can't get rid of these terrorists, right? That's how they describe the, the radical left. We can't get rid of these terrorists unless we are fully incorporated into the United States. Uh, that's, a, I think, a compelling argument. I'm not sure it's an argument that stands up on the whole to the notion of fascism, in part because they have to call them, they have to call the PNP colonial fascists, which is a troublesome term. The problem for the MLN is that if they're right, and I think they are, that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, then the fascists of the PNP don't have the kind of real power, the top-down authoritarian power um, that the MLN has said is the, the hallmark of fascism, right? They are instead, the PNP is itself subordinate to the federal government of the United States, right? And having elaborated this analysis of state repression of federal grand juries, of the, the repressive power of the FBI, all of that, it, it's difficult for them to kind of connect the dots and say that the PNP itself is fascist when the PNP lacks those sort of core powers that the MLN attributes to to fascism itself. So I, I, you know, I'm critical of their interpretation. I certainly agree that the PNP is a violent and reactionary and repressive outfit. When it's in power, there is something of a reign of terror targeting the left, including um, a couple of specific assassinations of independence activists, things that look a lot like the COINTELPRO response to the rise of the Black Panthers, right? Um, the, the assassination of Fred Hampton, that sort of thing, is stuff that's happening in Puerto Rico as well. Um, so that, you know, I think the MLN is absolutely right about that. I just don't know that it meets their own core definition of fascism. So are we, you know, kind of splitting hairs? Probably they are clearly a violent and reactionary power structure. And what about the way the MLN, again, this... Uh alliance between Puerto Rican nationalists and Chicano militants in the U.S. What about the way they viewed Mexico and the extent to which they used fascism to understand the one-party rule of the PRI in Mexico? I mean, PRI basically held on to power since the 1920s, right, into the 1970s and far beyond. Yeah, Mexico is... It's a one-party state, maybe like, uh, I don't know, Russia today. It, it has the sort of formal trappings of a representative government, but you always know who's going to win the election. It's always going to be the pre. The real power base is not really through the elections, but internal to the party. Um, this is, it's an interesting situation as well, uh, because, uh, again, the situation in Mexico with the pre is not uniformly typical of the kind of, you know, sort of core definition of fascism that the, the MLN operates with. Um, in many ways, the pre of the 1970s wants to present itself as a kind of a populist left 
sort of orientation. The president of Mexico from 1970 to 1976 is a guy named Luis Echeverria. And Echeverria is you know, very proud of things like he grants asylum to the widow of Salvador Allende. After Allende dies in the midst of the 1973 coup, um, his widow, Hortensia Busi, um, takes refuge in, in Mexico. And, and Echeverria is, is, you know, wants on a public stage to say, look, Mexico is not like the right-wing dictatorships of Chile. We are a, we are a liberal country. We, um, we support the right to dissent. Um, but that right to dissent is is very limited within Mexico itself. And the MLN really focuses on that aspect. And they look at Echeverria and they say, well, before you were president in 1968, you were responsible for uh, this infamous massacre, the Tlatelolco massacre uh, of student militants in Mexico City. And, you know, you can't get away with that and simply claim, oh, I'm, you know, I'm allowing radicals from other countries to have a, a safe haven here um, when you yourself are responsible for the kinds of state repression that we've already described as fascist when they happen in Chile itself or when they happen in Puerto Rico, when they happen in the United States. Um, and, and the MLN really takes that analysis of Echeverria as an individual, but of the PRI as a whole and says, look, th this is it. They're incredibly repressive. Uh, government. And in particular, when you look at the, the Mexicano members of the MLN, uh, many of them are very closely aligned with a number of armed organizations in Mexico proper. And those armed organizations are constantly being targeted by the PRI and the Mexican government for repression. So it's not a surprise that the MLN looks at the government of the PRI in Mexico and says, well, yeah, this is exactly what we've talked about with fascism. They are doing all of the things that, for instance, Pinochet did in, in Chile. Right. And there are some questions about whether one could, uh, maybe based on prevailing understandings of fascism, one could uh, claim that what the PRI was doing in the uh, 1970s in Mexico was was fascist, was formally speaking fascist. And yet you, you seem to be less interested in whether the MLN's analysis of fascism in these different places was accurate and more interested in, in what using fascism as a lens for a radical critique in the case of the MLN did for it and for the possibility of pan-ethnic alliance. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's exactly correct. You know, I... I as I think I said earlier, I, I want to sort of treat with respect the sophistication of the MLN, regardless of the fact that I disagree with some of their analysis, for instance, in the case of their analysis of the PNP in Puerto Rico, uh, or in general of their overarching definition of fascism. I have a different one myself. Um, but you're, you're right that that's not what really matters to me. What I'm looking at is the ways in which the MLN specifically mobilized this understanding of fascism as part of its kind of self-understanding as an organization that is binational, an organization that is made up of both Mexicanos and Puerto Rican radicals, and saying there is something significant about the context in which we're operating, and we need to take sort of extraordinary steps in order to respond to the problems that, again, they identify as fascist. And that those extraordinary steps are the building of what often scholars will call pan-ethnic alliances, collaborative efforts that unite Puerto Rican radicals and Mexicano radicals, uh, and gaining a sense through that process of their common identity, right? Today, we often talk about Latino identity, Hispanic identity, and scholars often will highlight the 1970s as the time period in which this kind of pan-ethnic Latino identity begins to emerge on a broader scale, um, not exclusively in terms of political radicals, not even exclusively in terms of political activists of any sort, but as a cultural norm, as a political opportunity, um, whatever the case. Uh, and you know, part of my argument in this article is that the radical left, you know, I'm using this sort of case study of the MLN, but they're hardly the only, you know, radical Puerto Ricans or Chicanos, Mexicanos to, to elaborate these kinds of pan-ethnic alliances. Um, they play a crucial role 
in developing what eventually comes to be understood as Latinidad or Latino identity more broadly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Michael Staudenmeyer is my guest. He's an historian based at Manchester University in Indiana, and we are talking about a radical history review article he wrote. It's called America's Scapegoats, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S. Latina, Latino, Latinx left 1973 to 1983. We have links to Michael and his work on our website, Against the Grain, If reacting to state repression was one of the reasons for the initial formation of the MLN in the first place, you have these Puerto Rican independence activists being repressed by the state via all kinds of mechanisms, including, as you said, grand jury investigations. You have Chicanos being repressed in, in many ways by the U.S. government, by the federal government, by local authorities then one might conclude that fascism in the U.S., as they viewed it, as MLN radicals viewed it, was a state-oriented endeavor. And and you have said that, you know, fascism um, was seen by these radicals as a kind of a top-down capitalist government-inspired activity and agenda. And yet you do write that fascism in the U.S. in the eyes of these militants was a double danger. What was the, what was the second dimension of this danger? So the, the other dimension of it is the rise in the 1970s of a resurgent Ku Klux Klan, um, as well as a small but quite vibrant neo-Nazi movement. Um, and these are clearly linked in some ways to uh, often to local police forces for instance you you'll find that if you you know you take off the hood of uh, of a clansman you'll um what was the phrase the MLN often used was under the white the blue uh, as in a lot of clansmen were also local cops but they're not part of the power structure per se they're not the same problem as the repressive power of the FBI or of the grand juries and and the MLN is keenly aware that they need to develop a, a strategic response to that other danger. And it's interesting to note that for a variety of reasons, the kind of uh, extra governmental far right, think about Klan and Nazis, um, they are really in the 1970s putting a lot more energy into targeting and again, scapegoating to borrow that phrase, uh, the Chicana, Chicano communities of the southwestern United States, right? Um, in in a, a kind of precursor to the sort of, you know, white nationalist build the wall kind of politics of Donald Trump and, and company uh, in the 21st century, um, even to the point where the Klan establishes its own volunteer Klan border watch in the southwest in the 1970s, um, that, you know, the, the MLN and, and like-minded Chicano radicals are very determined to kind of limit the capacity of these, you know, Klan and Nazi organizers in the Southwest um, to to kind of build that sort of racist anti-immigrant movement. So, you know, while the case of you know Puerto Rican repression is really this sort of classic top-down federal government repression of the Puerto Rican independence movement, the Chicano movement is often more likely to be in conflict less directly with the federal government and more directly with Klansmen and neo-Nazis in this kind of extra-governmental far-right movement. Right. In this article, you refer to a a lot of kind of domestic terror, white nationalist trends in the U.S. in the 1970s. You refer to the realignment of Ku Klux Klan forces in the 1970s. You refer to the violence in Greensboro, North Carolina in late 1979 against leftists. Hopefully listeners will go to the article, go to Radical History Review and read the article, which again is in the October 2020 issue of that journal. What did the MLN see as the contribution of evangelical Christians in U.S. politics to a certain fascist tendency? Well, in the 
1980 election, one of the things that's sort of notable about the election of Ronald Reagan is that Reagan, who's you know been divorced, never goes to church, uh, wins overwhelmingly the votes of evangelical Christians, in spite of the fact that his opponent, uh, Jimmy Carter, is himself an active, devout evangelical, right? It signals something about a shift in what, you know, today we think of as this kind of right-wing Christian, often Christian nationalist movement uh, that is, you know, not really about religiosity so much as it is about social policy. And the MLN is pretty quick to pick up on that, right? And they, they're they noting this shift in in religious affiliation and how it plays out in political terms. And that creates a situation where either members of the MLN or, for instance, Oscar Lopez Rivera, who's a, a political prisoner um, and a brother of Jose Lopez, we spoke about earlier, um, is able to articulate a critical analysis of the role of evangelicalism as part of the kind of U.S. imperial project in Latin America, right? Looking at the role of evangelical Christianities um, in the United States, but also their attempts to kind of proselytize and build religious communities in parts of Latin America as well, uh, and and arguing that this is really, as Oscar Lopez Rivera puts it, it's designed to establish a base for fascist ideology in the United States. Um, that's an interesting twist on this analysis of the religious right. We're very used to that kind of argument today. But in 1983, these are, are sort of novel claims to make. And, and it's not a coincidence that, again, they're drawing on the lens of fascism as a way to understand the power of evangelical Christianity, right? Again, the kind of scapegoating of know, of the left, scapegoating of immigrants, scapegoating of uh, gays and lesbians, all in the service of building this popular base for what we might call Christian nationalism in the United States. Mike, which of the dynamics that drove the developments and transformations of the 1970s and 80s that we've talked about today continue to exist uh, today in the U.S.? Whether because they've been part of U.S. politics all along over the last half century, or because they have resurfaced? I would say a couple of things. A big one is the persistence of immigration as a rallying cry for a certain kind of of right-wing politics. And with the rise of Donald Trump, we really saw that particular sort of, you know, kind of white supremacist anti-immigration rhetoric go very mainstream in a way that uh, you know, previously, both Democrats and Republicans had sort of resisted. And, you know, we're looking at, in many ways, a, a sort of cycle of politics where it is in response to a kind of uh, white supremacist and often anti-immigrant rhetoric that the MLN develops this set of pan-ethnic alliances and, in essence, sort of builds a collective sensibility of Latino identity that, in turn, becomes really the object of so much white nationalist anger and violence in the Trump era. So it's, it's to me, uh, it makes this kind of historical consideration particularly timely when we look at the role that immigration in particular plays um, in contemporary far-right politics. Uh, the other thing I would say is that, you know, there was a lot of commentary in the 2020 election, which came after this article had been published, uh, about how, in relative terms, how successful Trump had been at getting uh, a significant minority of Latinos to vote for him, um, and and having a hard time understanding why that's the case. There's, uh, you know, I think one of the problems of a kind of generic or flattened notion of Latinidad or Latino identity is that. Often you see the you know advocates for Democratic Party politics, whether they're politicians or uh, just talking heads in the media, um, will have this sort of undifferentiated, flattened notion of Latinos will vote Democratic because they're people of color, right? Um, where Trump was really, in many ways, kind of tuned into some of the fractures and divisions that never went away when these pan-ethnic alliances developed, right? And some of those fractures are, you know, able to pit uh, different Latino communities against each other um, and create opportunities for far-right 
politics to have an appeal, whether that's, again, in the form of a kind of Christian nationalism. The percentage of Latinos that are evangelicals has gone up in this country um, over the last several decades, uh, whether it's based on uh, anti-immigrant appeals, right? You get a certain percentage of Latinos who buy into the build the wall sentiment, um, or whether it's based in other forms of, of uh, for instance, anti-Black racism um, that can be appealing to uh, certain segments of the Latino population that would like to see themselves as effectively white. So, you know, Latinidad is not a stable concept uh, by any means. And if anything, we're seeing perhaps in our, our current decade, a return to some of the uh, instability that characterized the moment in which these panethnic alliances are being built by the MLN and other groups uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. Michael Staudenmeier is his name, S-T-A-U-D-E-N-M-A-I-E-R, Assistant Professor of History at Manchester University in Indiana, author of Truth and Revolution, A History of the Sojourner Truth Organization, 1969 to 1986. And you may want to check out also his article, the article we've been talking about today, found in the October 2020 issue of Radical History Review. It's called America's Scapegoats, Ideas of Fascism in the Construction of the U.S., Latina, Latino, Latinx, left 1973 to 1983. Michael, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>